0: You're listening to Aid Evolved, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. I clicked record on the first episode of this podcast just over a year ago. My goal was to tell the stories of the people working at the intersection of technology, poverty, and health. People looking at the situation of healthcare systems in Africa, Asia, and the Americas, and seeing whether and how we can apply technology to make them work a bit better. This is my space, my sector, this is where I've been working for my entire career. And I feel really fortunate that I've had the chance to poke and prod people from a lot of different parts of the sector through this podcast. We're talking about funders and innovators, nonprofits, health systems leaders, government, the whole shebang. So now that we're wrapping up the year, I thought I might take the space ahead of us to pull these thoughts together. Share with you some of the conversations that really made me think and, and how it got my brain spinning. Let me know if you like this format or if there's another topic or speaker you'd like us to unpack in a similar way on Twitter at Aid Evolved. Let's dive in. The first clip I'll share with you is one from way back in January. I'm chatting with Carl Brown, who used to lead much of the digital portfolio for the Rockefeller Foundation. He summarizes this whole ecosystem of actors in the aid industry through a parable. Who uses parables these days?
1: The other realization I came to is this idea of kind of like what you see depends on where you stand. I came up with this metaphor or that maybe it's like a parable of like the bird and the frog. You imagine this bird which is flying over a lake and and the bird you know, she can see the size of the lake and she can see where the water comes in and where the water comes out. And she can see where the frogs live and where the crocodiles live. And the bird thinks that she understands the lake because she can see the whole lake, right? And then you have the frog and the frog lives in the lake. And the frog understands the details of all these various insects and the relationships between the plants and the insects and how to avoid a predator. And the frog thinks they really understand the lake. And then you have an airplane that flies over, and the airplane it can count you know dozens of lakes, and the airplane knows about the ocean. and so the airplane thinks that they really understand the world, right and so and, and obviously, right? nobody really understands the totality of it, right it's 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 like the parable of the blind man and the elephant where everybody is just seeing part of the problem. And I think all of the problems we face in development are like this, like we can only see part of it because of where we stand. So I always wanted to be very aware of that as a donor that the way I viewed the world, because I was privileged enough to be able to travel to so many countries and meet with so many brilliant people who were working on challenges, it it made me think that I understood the space but that was just because of where I stood. And that wasn't the same thing as understanding from different points of view in different positions. Right. And, and to really value those other ways of seeing as equally valid interpretations of the world, that, that my view of the world was just one interpretation of the world. And it wasn't necessarily the true interpretation.
0: Again, I didn't think much of the frog and the bird and the airplane at the time that I chatted with Carl but it's come back to me several times over the course of the year. I spent most of my first decade in the global health and digital health space working on projects. And for me in each project, there's always something specific that I know could be done better. This button needs to be bigger, it'll be easier to find. This phone needs a longer battery life, that kind of thing. But all of those projects, all of those individual implementations They sit within a broader ecosystem of funders, and donors, and organizations. And you could focus on any individual project, or you could focus on the larger systems that create those projects, the funders, the markets, the aid industry. So I asked myself, what is the point of all this work that we do? And the first answer I came up with is, we're trying to strengthen healthcare systems which for much of Africa and Asia, means strengthening government-led health systems. So let's talk to the people that run those health systems. In August, I spoke with Dominic Atwim from Ghana Health Services. He spent 15 years working within the department that oversees all of the digital health deployments in Ghana. I asked him, why do so many digital health projects fail? What is it that works in the few that succeed?
2: I will not say the programs did not go well. It is the scale-up that never goes wrong. I mean, all the projects that have not been scaled up, the reports from those projects were perfect and good to perfect. I mean, these are all projects that should have scaled. I mean, SMS for Life, E-Blood, I mean, the big one, Motech, Early and Systems. These are all projects that the deliverables were so key and they were all wonderful projects that, If it had gone to scale, it would have been wonderful. But this key project could not go to scale because to sustain it was a problem. So let me, I mean, and I always use uh, mobile technology for health as an example. Millions of dollars was used. I mean, Bill Gates, look, a project that even made Bill Gates travel to Ghana to go to one of the remotest villages in Ghana. That should tell, yeah, I mean, let's Gate in Ghana and other things. That should tell you that, that project was a success. But we couldn't scale because it there was no way that the health sector could support that because it was expensive. It was just the method and approach. So most of the time, the method and the approach of implementation fails us. If you're deploying a digital health solution, um, because of the because most of these funded projects are resort-oriented, they end up um do you call it, employing extra people who get paid well and who will do the work to get the results. Forgetting that, you already have an existing health worker force who might not be receiving 50% or 70% of what you are paying these new guys. And the moment the project ends, they leave. I mean, how are they going to run that project?
0: Did you catch that part? Where Dominic was complaining about how government... Health workers don't even get 50% of the pay that people working in the nonprofit sector get. Why would you stay within government running the core health systems if you could go work for a nonprofit? Still doing good work, but getting paid twice as much. So the natural conclusion from this discussion was all right, let's invest more in government systems, or at least local systems. I know not everyone has the appetite to work with government, it requires a certain amount of. Diplomacy and patience and consensus building. And I know I'm certainly not the most diplomatic person out there. But what about local nonprofits and technology startups? And we do this work more cost-effectively, working with people that live in the communities that we're trying to serve. All the aid organizations and funders talk about wanting to do this. But why is there so little funding that flows to local organizations? In September, I spoke with Marie Ahmed of USAID. Who gave me a peek into the reality of why it's so hard for a donor like USAID to fund a local organization.
3: There's a lot of questions around why don't you just directly fund local organizations?
0: Yeah, there are.
3: Instead of using these implementing partners, large NGOs and things like that. But a big part of the answer is because there's a lot of regulations that come with the accountability piece and that is really important, being accountable for the program since the U.S. taxpayer, where this money is going. And would you rather know where it's going and not necessarily love it or not have any idea where it went or what it did?
0: Oh, that's that's like between a rock and a hard place, which I think is where a lot of these decisions end.
3: Exactly. Which is why I think, you know, you know, USAID has tried to find the middle uh, the middle ground in this, which is to, you know, yes, we use large partners to do a lot of our implementation. At the same time, these local, you know, we've had over the years I've been with USAID, a few now, um, local capacity building initiatives where we work directly with local organizations to increase their capacity to manage US, US funding. Because when we give them money, we ask them for a lot of things that they weren't necessarily set up to do. You know, a small organization that started out helping, you know, fellow men who have sex with men get access to treatment wasn't necessarily thinking about what kind of financial software they need to use to be able to respond to the audits from the U.S. government.
0: Huh. Right? That's a great example. So
3: in terms of helping them figure out how to do that, that takes time, right? Somebody who initially, like I said, their day-to-day work was, or might have been, talking to you know somebody who is at risk of HIV and trying to get them to come in to do testing, might all of a sudden now, years later, right, be the head of an organization that does that at a larger scale, but now this person has to understand also, like, how to do an annual report, how to use indicators, how to communicate their story, how to report where all the money went.
0: Yeah, yeah. And maybe maybe their, their passion and what they're good at is connecting um, with men who have sex with men and, like, delivering programs, and maybe they just aren't great with financial software or with, you know, with, or with diligently reporting every week or every month.
3: I remember, actually... At one point, I had a conversation with an international partner who had um, a group of subpartners. And we said, you know, are any of these subpartners good candidates for direct funding from USAID? And they said, listen, we're not saying this to to make this hard for you, but they're like, they don't really want to deal with you. You know, like the internet, they were, you know, they said the local partners are very happy to have us essentially as the buffer. Like we deal with the donor, we deal with the reporting, we help them, you know, keep all their books straight. Yeah, well, they can do what they're good at. They don't necessarily want to deal directly with the donor and all of your demands and you guys calling them and saying, like, we really need this report or we need this tweet or we need this fact sheet. <laughs> yeah. So, it, for you know, for local organizations, too, they have to think of their own cost benefit analysis. Right.
0: Actually, even even as you are saying, I was just thinking like, is there some way that we could get somebody else to do the financial accounting for these small organizations? And that's what these big agencies are doing, like these large nonprofits, these you know, Beltway Bandits um, that take all of, of, of USAID monies. Part of what they're doing is is providing that rigor and that reporting so that the small social enterprise or the small nonprofit doesn't need to figure out the complexities of the U.S. government reporting systems. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it in that way until this exact conversation.
3: And it can be overwhelming. You know, I had to say something that really opened my eyes was very recently when I arrived here in Thailand, i have been here in Thailand for about two years, and we actually do fund HIV service delivery for key population-led health services here in Thailand. So, But we fund them through um, FHI 360. So we have an IP who subs to these local organizations for service delivery for key populations for men who have sex with men and transgender. What's an IP? Implementing partner. Ah, sorry, yes. So we fund um, a handful of local organizations here in Thailand as subpartners to um, an an international partner. And, um, you know, in the discussions we have had with our headquarters and also with um, the Office of the Global AIDS Coordinator, they've said, you guys should be funding more local partners uh, directly. Mm -hmm. I said, listen, we we have a very small team at USAID RDMA. What is RDMA? Sorry, that's the Regional Development Mission for Asia. Gotcha. That's the acronym for my office, USAID RDMA. Um, So we don't really have the capacity, because it also takes a lot more work from the USAID side to do local partner work, right? Like Because we have to be able to follow up more for local partners, right? Like, if we're going to ask these things of them, we have to be ready to support them also. So a lot of our missions that do a lot more work with local organizations have larger staffs so that they can provide direct support, too. So when the accountant at the local organization says, I don't know what to do about this quarterly report, they call up the financial person at the USAID mission, and they can help answer the question directly, right? So you need kind of more staffing on both sides. Um, but sorry, that that's like one piece. But, but so I would say- That's that, a great you know, example. Us, the Thailand team is small, relatively, right? We're actually not a Thailand program. We're a regional, we're an Asia region program. USAID is non-presence for Thailand. We don't actually have an official Thailand program.
0: How, how small um, is small?
3: The- like you said, the,
0: the, the, the Thailand team is small. I'm just curious, like, what's like, like oh. your, your finance team? Like, you know, is it, is it one person? Is it?
3: <laughs> so, like I said, there's actually nobody for Thailand. This is the regional oh, mission gotcha. for Asia. So, we support 14 missions in Asia. Oh, wow. Um, That's huge. Which Thailand is one. Yeah. So, the USAID RDMA team is a good size, it's pretty large. Um, yeah. but, in ter- but nobody's dedicated to Thailand. Right. They're gotcha. supporting
0: many countries. So it's hard. So if one local Thai organization calls up the head of finance at USAID RDMA, that's, you know, you, you just can't do that sustainably across 14 different country offices that you support and, you know, an arbitrary number of local organizations within those country offices.
3: Yeah. So the, and even our, and within the health office, um, we don't have a very large HIV team right now. Um, at one point, we only had, you know, one person actually. So... So there's the staffing element. But I think that that's, I think, actually secondary. That's one piece, right, just, you know, internally. But then the more important piece, you know, that question of, like, why aren't you funding more local organizations is, you know, we were looking at the way that we've been working with these local organizations as subs, right? We've been working with them to develop their services to a level of quality that they can get reimbursed from the Thai government, from the National Health Security oh. Office here in Thailand.
0: That makes so much sense.
3: And if you look at the trend over time, over the last four or five years, they have increased, they have steadily increased the proportion of their budget that is coming through reimbursements from the Thai government.
0: That's amazing. That's awesome.
3: Some of them, it's a very clear clear success story, actually. Um, Yeah. So I think some of them are even majority funded by the reimbursements that they're getting from the National Health Security Office. Well done. So for my, so when they asked us, why aren't we locally funding, I said, why would we, inject ourselves at this point in time to create a system for them to report to the US government instead of continuing to support their evolution to getting more financing from the Thai government.
0: Right, very right,
3: Because right. the U.S. system is completely, like, we have very specific criteria that don't match most other donors. I mean, a lot yeah. of other donors will defer to our systems, we have a lot of requirements. Um, and oftentimes they'll answer, like, it answers the same needs that some of the other donors will have. But, you know, if, if these organizations are on a nice glide path already for the Thai government, it just didn't make sense to me to try to, like, anything that we would do at that point is a derailment in my opinion.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think people don't realize that there is this whole reporting system that necessarily needs to exist and why it exists and what onus it creates on a small organization. Like, you know, for me, like I'm I'm as uh, much a fan as anyone of supporting local organizations. But if you tell me that that means that local organizations all need to hire like three dedicated accounting finance people, then I'll be like, no, that's crazy. You know, that's a lot of these organizations are 15 people to begin with. From this conversation, I get why it's hard. And I appreciate you pulling that up.
3: It's almost inevitable that, it, like, you know, to feed the beast, you kind of you have to create a little one, right? Like, they, they kind of have to be, they kind of have to be matched in a way. Like I said, you know, like, you know, at the local organization, if the finance person has a question, who are they going to call? Right? Like, they need someone to call. Um, so then, yeah. like, do you have that kind of counterpart on your team? Otherwise, you know, how do they get help? But I think the bigger issue for me that I've seen, especially in Thailand, is or the bigger, I guess the clarity that I've gotten from from seeing this situation in Thailand is really, you know, if USAID or the US government really doesn't intend to be there forever, then we need to really think about, you know, what direction we're headed in. And in some countries that are farther along, like Thailand, for example, we don't need to be messing with what seems to already be working. we want to support that, um, even though you know it doesn't look great. Honestly, for us, when they say how much of the, what percentage of your budget goes to local organizations, so I'm like zero. <laughs> <laughs> you know that that you know on the surface of it does not reflect well on USAID or the U.S. government. Um, but I hope that when people hear the reason, reason why, they understand and can agree. Yeah, I don't understand why. Like, I, I can't think of a good reason to. Um, to disrupt what I see as a good trajectory right
0: now. This question of how do we support local entrepreneurs, how do we fund local organizations, I admit it's been pretty high in my mind. At the start of my career, one of the first people that inspired me to join the sector was a young man from Ghana. He and I became good friends. He was passionate, extraordinarily hardworking, a dentist during the day, writing computer software at night. And I often wonder to myself, what am I doing now that's actually supporting my friend? Today, I live in South Africa, a place I've called my home for the past six years. And I would love to grow the economy here. I would love to find technical talent here and create a truly South African organization that could help carry this continent to the next level. But for whatever reason, it's hard to turn the flows of aid money towards local technology startups. Next, we hear from an old friend of mine, Ismael Diene, from Senegal, who's worked with me at the social enterprise Demagi.
4: I think one of the challenges I see, and I'll be quite blunt here, Please. is that the money often goes to companies that are funded by Northern people. <laughs> yeah. Like you have people from the development who come here, build their own company and, and get those fundings. And if, if you look at it, not that it doesn't exist, but it's it's more uh, it's rare to, to find like when a Senegalese person or Guinean people or Malian people have their company funded, and and I think there is still that barrier yeah. that we need to get. But but I think yes, for me they should definitely invest.
0: You're not even talking about an American or an English company in America or England, you're talking about an American comes to Senegal and starts an organization, they're more likely to get funding than if a Senegalese person starts the same organization.
1: Yeah, definitely,
4: definitely.
0: Why do you think that is?
4: I mean, uh, sh- should we go into political <laughs> views and
0: do I don't want to get you in trouble, Ismaelon. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's not, I'm, <laughs> i in mean, trouble.
4: I think, I mean, we, we're in a world where we're seeing some, some change. And I, I won't say some change, but some realization of the greater number that, unfortunately, the world is uh, structured in a way where people from certain origins, colors, have been dominating the world. <laughs>
0: Maybe the better question is: yeah. How do we change that? Uh,
4: yeah, that's a good question.
0: You and me, Ismaila, How do we change that? It's,
4: it's a good question, and and for me, there there, are, there is no perfect solution. Like I said, I'm not I'm oh. not an optimistic, but I'm not pessimistic. I'm realistic, and I'm looking at the situation and see: Okay, what can I do? What can I do to change things already around me? So I, I think for me, mm-hmm. the, the the mistake we want to do always is try to change everything at the same time.
1: Hmm. And, Interesting.
4: And then I think uh, I might be wrong. And sometimes maybe sometimes a shock might be enough to change everything. But but I believe for things that are rooted in history, like we're talking about systems that went from three hundred to five hundred years ago, that are more or less still in place in different ways, but that the root of it is still mm-hmm. there. How do you change that in mm-hmm. a year, in five years, in ten years? I don't think it's possible. I think you have to do it slowly <laughs> and surely. And and I think mm-hmm. one. From the Western point of view, I think it's one about re- realization first, like self-awareness that this thing exists. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, just calling out the problem. Exactly. Like you're doing right now, I think, is a huge thing. That has
4: step. to happen. That, that I mean, that has to happen first, because otherwise we're, we're talking, we're, we're on two different realities that where we, we will never... Be able to find solutions, so that that has to happen first before we get there. And I yes. and I think we're so far from having the greater number of realizing that is happening. We're still having discussion over internet or with within families where people are fighting because they have a different view of like what's happening in the world. But but I think there are historic facts and current facts that we need to all agree upon before we're able to move ahead. But that that's the reopen side, and I cannot control that side. But for what I can control for me, it's about doing small and, and, and sustainable change around me. I cannot change Senegal. I can change what's happening in my neighborhood. Or at least I can try. Mm-hmm. So that, that's always yeah. what, I, what I think we should all try to do. And once we have done that, then we can go to the next step. So starting with how can you help people around you? How can you help your community? How can you help Mm-hmm. people uh, who are looking uh, for jobs. How can you create value, to value and, and, and employ them? How can you improve their health? Like Doing those small things Absolutely. around you, for me, is the, is the first step. And when we're able to do that, uh, we can go to the, to the next stage. But today, the, the main problem, and I'm not getting into politics, but even people <laughs> who, who have really good intentions about changing the system I feel like don't understand the system enough and want to like kind of overhaul it. And when you do that, the problem mm-hmm. is you're going to fight your own brothers and sisters <laughs> that, that are in the system right now. Huh. So it needs to be for yeah. me an iterative and, and kind of slow pace change around you first before you get to the to the next stages.
0: Is there a better way, an easier way to work than going through Big Aid? I thought perhaps we might look at some small family foundations that operate independently and can be a bit more agile and creative than some of the larger funding institutions. So I spoke with Kevin Starr of Mulligo Foundation, which runs super lean with just a handful of staff and prides itself on identifying talent and then investing in that talent with unrestricted funding that can go towards core operational costs. If you're in the public sector or the private sector, unrestricted cash is an organization's lifeblood. It's what you use to pay for the core salary of accountants and administrators that nobody else is gonna pay for. Like USAID, Kevin is still accountable for his outputs and his metrics. But unlike USAID, the way he thinks about metrics, the way he talks about them, is just a little bit different. Kevin shares what he learned from one of the first organizations he invested in, one that he cared about deeply, but just couldn't find a way to make things work.
5: I just remember this day, this like bluebird day on the Tibetan plateau and Everest and this chain of mountains is in the background. And we are actually standing outside of the Land Cruiser yelling at each other because we can't find a way to reconcile. His deep, deep sense that this thing works and I ought to see it just from experiencing it and my sort of desperate need for some numbers that could capture create a shared reality around what was happening and one we actually ended up splitting oh it was very it was actually kind of funny in retrospect he actually sent he got so mad he sent a letter to my board terminating the relationship which made them a little bemused but i realized that i really this guy was really important to me and i really cared about him and i realized that that Measuring things actually can be a way of caring for relationships because you need to find a shared reality. And you could see how the fact that we didn't have anything to really engage on around around filling out a shared reality and our friendship really suffered. And now it's really important to me that we have these metrics with all these people I admire so much. So that we can understand what's really going on together, and if it isn't a fit for us, I can explain exactly why. Because that's the most—that's the most important, respectful thing I feel like I can do. Is if, if things are or aren't a fit, we have a f- a framework and an understanding, a way of understanding impact that I can I can explain and defend and and fundamentally show respect.
0: Kevin, that is probably the most beautiful description I've heard for why we need common metrics in the aid sector. Uh, you know, like I, I've been parts of other conversations where people say I need it for my board. I need it for USAID. I need it for, for, you know, because the powers that be require it. But you're saying, you know, you speak for the foundation. You need that even just so that you and your partner know what you're shooting for. You know, that you're going for, that you're going for impact and what does that impact and how are you measuring it? And what that gives you is an ability to step above some of the human relationships that can bog us down. And what I really like about that is, uh, you know, speaking for me personally, like working in the aid sector, there's lots of good people here. Everyone has the best of intentions. You know, you want to support them. Everyone wants to help each other out. But at the end of the day, that's not why people have entrusted us with their money. You know, what we're here for is to fight poverty. Um, and, And if you have those metrics that you're fighting towards, then you can hold yourself and your partners accountable Um, So that's a really, that's a really moving description, Kevin. And I thank you so much for sharing that.
5: Well, I'm just going to kind of segue from that, you know, the kind of at the center is this notion of, of impact as a way of keeping relationships, measuring as a way of keeping relationships healthy, but there's so many reasons to do it. I mean, one is I, I tell social entrepreneurs this all the time. It's sort of like you're throwing your life into this idea you have. The very least you owe yourself is to know if it's working.
0: So where does all of that leave us? What are some of the things we've learned from these conversations? As Kevin argues, know what you're shooting for and measure it. As Carl talks about in his pond analogy, you want to know if you're a frog or a bird or a plane. And as Ismail talked about, you can't avoid the structural inequity that lifts some entrepreneurs and innovators and holds others back and at the same time you have to ignore everything that you think you know here's a quote from sebastian manhart who recently left simprints about what it took to get a young group of idealists to start simprints
4: to be honest thinking back it was just a beautiful time because because we were so idealistic and naive um, and I, and i think I think that's that. That's really helpful when you're trying to get something off the ground, because if you if you know everything that there is to know, at least a fraction of it, you would never try.
0: That was a short one, but it's come back to me so many times over the course of this past year. Let me say it again. If you knew everything there is to know, even a fraction of it, you would never try. I certainly don't have all the answers, and every time I think too hard about it, my head spins with all the things that work and don't work and the things that you try and the things that fail. But at the end of the day, you gotta try something, even if you know it's gonna fail, because we wanna be part of how this gets better. So I'm gonna try a few more things, even if I can think of all the reasons they won't work. And we'll see how it goes. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and this grab bag of different ideas. And if you'd like to read more about our year in review, you can sign up for the newsletter at aidevolved.com. We're going to be launching a brand new season in 2022, and I'll tell you all about it in January. Happy holidays, everyone. Stay safe.